Hello, Good Justin. Good to yeah. see you. Thank you. We have the one and only John Schusler, who's agreed to come back and have another conversation with us. John, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This is the highlight of the year. <laughs> it's, been it? year. It's, yeah, it's been right. a weird year. It's been a weird year. Yeah, uh, things are a little different than last time we got together. I believe um, we were able to gather in person at Downtown Uncorked last time, which is not something we can do these days. We were packed into like a super small room. <laughs> At least now we get to do it from home. It's a little bit more cozy, I, I guess, but it would be nice to see you guys. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like the atmosphere at downtown Uncorked. It's not that I dislike my home, but I'm seeing an awful lot of it these days. Yeah, I forget if there's a world outside of my home. Everything seems to take place on my computer screen. I don't know anything about the world otherwise anymore. Well, it's good to see you guys. We have a lot to get through. Um, um, so with that in mind, oh, look, I forgot to put John's banner up there. John Schuster. There he is. Um, a couple of top item things before we jump into our topic with John. One is that if you are in Texas, it's early voting. You should, uh, if you have opportunity, vote, uh, vote, vote, vote. If you are not in a state where early voting is, uh, is a possibility or is not going on right now, election day is two weeks precisely from today. It's hard to believe we're that close, guys. Oh, God, I can't wait. This is <laughs> this has just been going on forever, and these next two weeks are going to be interminable. Yeah. I'll have this uh, conversation with my 80-plus-year-old um, grandfather, um, and every every time we talk, we talk a couple times a week, he's like, I can't wait till this damn election is over. <laughs> I'm so tired of the political ads. And he has like an old school, like phone in your house. I think they call those things. What are those calls, guys? Landlines? Is that what? Land, you know? land, oh. yes. Landlines. <laughs> and apparently they get all kinds of political calls, uh, which kudos to uh, the iPhone on that one, because it lets me know when I'm getting a political call and I can just ignore it. Well, uh, related to the election, uh, we try, we've done, I think, a pretty effective job, Greg, of uh, not getting caught up in only talking about things going on in the executive branch. I guess our listeners will be judges of whether we've done a good job or not. But tonight we're going to dive right into talking about uh, the president and his uh, challenging relationship with the truth, um, the, the degree to which he's noted for uh, lack of veracity in his claims, I think, as Wikipedia puts it. Um, and uh, there's a number of fact checkers that have been kind enough, kind enough to track the number of misleading or false claims that the president has told um, while he's in office. And uh, the president lies or misleads more in a day than I eat, nap, places I walk together, I mean, all of my daily routines, he, he lies more on average in one day than things I do in a day. And I work 10 and 12 hour days. Uh, yeah, but was that? Yeah, you're not on Twitter. <laughs> not regularly, anyways. <laughs> but the Washington Post uh, has, the, uh, has tracked the president lying about an average of 15 times a day. That's over 20,000 times as of, the, as of July before we even ramped up the. Uh, current election season and the campaign season. So this is something that John actually joined us uh, quite a while back. I, I think maybe it's been two seasons ago now, John, when we 
yeah. we talked about uh, talked about the president's uh, difficulty with the truth as he was entering the office. But before we before we jump into that, um, let's maybe tell the audience just to to kind of situate them in case they have missed our earlier episode. Why we have you on as our expert about uh, presidents and deception? Give us a little bit about your uh, intellectual history that brings you to this to this conversation. All right. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks again for having me, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, so, uh, way back in the early 2000s, when we were all innocent, um, <laughs> I started my dissertation on the topic of deception in, in international politics, or more specifically, presidential deception about going to war. Um, and that turned into my first book, which is called Deceit on the, the Road to War, Presidents, Politics, and American Democracy. Um, and in that book, I make the argument that um, the democratic process gives presidents strong incentives to mislead the public about difficult issues surrounding going to war. So um, the cases I feature in the book are Franklin Roosevelt and the run-up to World War II, Lyndon Johnson and the run-up to the Vietnam War, and then George W. Bush and the run-up to the 2003 Iraq War. And in each case, I document um, kind of the ways in which each administration was less than candid with the public about why they were going to war, or usually how much they were being forced into war um, as a way to kind of head off debate on these difficult topics. So that's, that's my background academically. Um, I've also written one essay where I was asked by a forum, H. Diplo, um, to apply the framework from the book to President uh, a new President Donald Trump. This was in early 2017 when the essay was published. And I basically argued the book really couldn't do a lot <laughs> to explain <laughs> this particular president for reasons maybe we can get more into, uh, one of which had to do with the fact that the line between deception and self-deception is awful tough with President Trump. So, um, is he lying all this time or can he simply not quote handle the truth? You know, do the facts not penetrate? Um, and a second issue had to do with how top down this was versus bottom up. So in the cases I looked at, I was convinced that these presidents were uh, deceiving the public in a top down way to minimize domestic opposition to war, to maximize domestic support. In the Trump case, I would argue there's more of a bottom-up demand for his deception. I think a lot of his supporters enjoy the way that he takes wild liberties with the truth. It's a way to kind of stick it to liberals and um, elites and the marketplace of ideas. In fact, um, uh, recently I was looking at a Pew poll where I think something like 70% of Republicans think the fact checkers are biased. <laughs> so um, this is an example where uh, partisan polarization kind of provides the environment in which misinformation becomes kind of a winning strategy for President Trump. And that's very different from what I thought I saw in, in my academic work. So one of the, uh, maybe one place to start on this, I, as we were talking beforehand, I got to read back through the H. Diplo article and was having flashbacks to our 
podcast a couple of years ago um, and having pleasant memories of that conversation. But one of the things that you, you mentioned now is this line between deception and uh, self-deception. And one of the ones that's come up recently as a consequence of Bob Woodward's um, uh, reporting and the president being on tape talking about these things is the, is the most egregious, now this isn't going to war, this is maybe a, a type of war against an infectious disease. So if we wanna maybe think about the parallels there, but it seems pretty clear um, that the president was aware er, much earlier than publicly admitting the, the, the fact that the virus was airborne, that it was going to be very dangerous, that, um, that the, the level of kind of, a, of concern, he was deliberately downplaying and misleading and uh, lying about. And I remember Greg and I speculating um, in frustration at the time that, you know, is this this self-deception thing? Like, does he believe this nonsense or is this more nefarious? Is it a deliberate attempt to mislead Americans so um, for, for whatever purpose, and, and I think his claim was to that they were less afraid, um, which is, uh, is, is something worth evaluating on its own merits, I think. But, you know, given what's come out since 2017, is your sense still that a lot of his is self-deception? Is that I, I would certainly ascribe to this bottom-up phenomenon. Um, we could talk about maybe what that looks like, but at least in the case of, of COVID-19 and, and the coronavirus, it seems there's pretty good evidence that the deception wasn't his self-deception. He knew this was least dangerous for America and just went about lying and misleading anyways. So do you have a sense of, as you reflect back on your thoughts in 17 and the myriad crises we've had since then, how much of this do you think is, uh, is self-deception and how much of this do you think is active deception? Well, it's, it's a great case. Um, well, not, I mean, COVID is horrifying, but it's good for the purposes of this discussion. Um, I think this case is one of the most concrete pieces of evidence we have that he said something that he knew not to be true. Um, so he acknowledged privately that this is a dangerous disease and it's spread through the air and then suggested otherwise publicly. And there's, you know, I think reasonable grounds to, to think that he this had a lot to do with not spooking the stock market at the time. Now that said, there's still a healthy amount of self-deception here. And, and how do we know this? Well, one is he got sick. He got the virus because of how shoddy the practices were at the White House. I mean, they truly seem to believe it's really not that big a deal or else they would not have acted in the way they did. I think you again. You, maybe they were they had too much confidence in in rapid testing or something. But I, I actually think, the more we learn, the more we have to conclude that the White House or at least elements of it actually thinks herd immunity is a promising strategy, even though this is quite a fringe position um, in terms of the amount of risk that they're willing to incur. Uh, so. Yes, there's some deception, but I think it's paired with a fair amount of self-deception as well. And this is the problem with President Trump. It's always 3070. Um, I do think you must know he's saying misleading things on a number of occasions, but he's doing it because he's convinced himself of something, that the American people think COVID's no big deal, or the media is filled with 
um, you know, a bunch of partisan hacks, etc. Um, so it, it's hard to parse out. So one of the, um, I agree, uh, by the way, I, as I watched the things play out in the White House and the, the kind of the celebration in the Rose Garden of the confirmation uh, of the nomination of the Supreme Court Justice, my, uh, my wife and I had this conversation that was, uh, and I had a couple with, with a couple buddies, like, it seems like they're, they, they really believe it. Like, it seems like they're hugging one another, no one's wearing masks. It doesn't seem like a show. It seems like it has really become an ideology um, that it, it can't affect them or that it's not that bad. And they actually, despite all evidence to the contrary throughout the world, are, are actually convinced themselves that that's true. And so I think it really is hard to tell, to your point, which pieces of it are, are actual deception in which pieces of it are self-deception because several of these actions are really, really reckless for the people who are at these gatherings given their health conditions and their age um, to be behaving that way. So then I guess another piece of this is, John, is this just a whole different strategy? And I think this is what you allude to uh, when you said that the that Trump's case was different. But what do you see as his, as his strategy then if... Um, if it's not to, if it's not uh, kind of deceiving to get popular support or minimize uh, popular uh, resistance to something, what is his approach? Given that you know, when we look at people who follow fact checking and people who uh, journalists and people that have tracked this, uh, you know, making a little light of it, but he really is orders of magnitude um, more likely to tell a lie with any given statement than really any other comparison point we have at that level. Is this just a whole, like, is that is that just the strategy that if there's enough kind of muddying in the waters, there will just be frustration and people will resign from caring what the truth is? I mean, is this part of what is a, is a successful strategy in a quote unquote post-truth era? I, I mean, I do think it's a political strategy of a kind, but it's not like what we've seen before. So you know, after writing on this, I had convinced myself that deception, misinformation, whatever you want to call it, was a way to kind of head off debate, to kind of minimize controversy, to um, sweep the messiness under the rug. And President Trump revels in debate and acrimony and division. And I think a lot of this misinformation is it's like a signal to his audience that like you know um, I'm on your team I'm willing to say things that other presidents have not been willing to say I'm willing to stick it to the media and the fact checkers and the experts um, you know I'm with you or I'm of you I'm not with them that that's my interpretation um, and it's worked up to a point in that this is the bottom-up element. I think many Americans feel uh, an attachment to him that they haven't felt to past Republican presidents in particular. Um, he has a bit of a cult of personality around him, you know, the rallies, and, um, and he's I think he's engaged a group of people that maybe uh, were political before, but are even more intensely political now. And it's kind of a code he uses to communicate with them um, that he's on their side. Yeah. Uh, 
that's my best interpretation of how he uses misinformation. Um, so simply so pointing out that he's being misleading just reinforces the strategy. So John, how's this different from the cases that you that you looked at? Uh, all of whom, you know, uh, Johnson, George W. Bush, and uh, and and FDR all all lied. I mean, they all used yeah. deceit on the road to war. T tell me how you see, if at all, you see Trump differently. Is it is it that that the other ones used deception? to try to rally greater support, whereas President Trump uses deception to polarize support uh, between his, his base. He's not trying to expand the base, right? Um, right. To use the, the, ter the journalistic term now. I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to get at what sets him apart, or is he just a more extreme case of what we've seen before? Well, um, so, I'll contrast him with Franklin Roosevelt, who I first wrote on in this regard. And, you know, Ro Roosevelt in many ways was cautious up to a point about pushing the American public in a direction he thought they were not naturally inclined to go. And so a lot of his deception actually stemmed from the fact that he didn't think he could just say candidly, there are good reasons to get into the war in Europe. Um, instead, he felt the country needed to be pushed by events, and he <laughs> helped create some of those mm -hmm. events or tried to. Um, so uh, he had a healthy respect for um, the limits of, of the bully pulpit, of his, of his powers of persuasion, even though he was a master at uh, distilling complex issues into simple language and talking to the American people in a familiar way. Um, Something I, he doesn't share with the current president, just as a, as a sign. What's that? <laughs> Something well, he does not share with the current president as a particular skill of explaining complex things in a simple yeah. way that we can understand. Uh, well, I think there's been a Explaining simple things in a complex way that no one can understand because it doesn't make <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Sorry, John. Go ahead. That's no, okay. I mean, so I mean, Trump's case, you know, is he making any effort to shy away from uh, controversial points that might divide the American people in order to ease us into a consensus on something we might be reluctant to agree on? I mean, weirdly enough. His actual policy positions going into his term, he could have done this in a few cases mm -hmm. on immigration and fiscal policy and foreign policy, where he was a little closer to the median voter than what either party had traditionally offered. And he might have found some way, if he had the skill or the inclination, to kind of um, break the, the deadlock that had beset these issues. But he just made no attempt to do this. Um, instead, on every issue, he kind of says, there's my side, and then there are people who are not American enough. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, there's no attempt to generate broad support. There's an attempt to kind of say, um, there's the real American people who I represent, and then the others. And 
I don't really have any obligation to try to persuade the others of my, of the, you know, of the quality of my decision. So FDR and Johnson and, and George W. Bush, and we have to emphasize you're talking about George W. Bush, not our hero, George H. W. Bush, who never lied. Uh, he was like George Washington. Uh, but I, the, the first three used deceit to build support for policies that, to some extent, they had to get through Congress, right? Uh, whereas President Trump doesn't see getting Congress to do things as being part of his job, right? Right. That's a good he, he has he has very few legislative victories that he can point to, yeah. Uh, yeah. and and the ones that he can are just kind of typical Republican stuff. We're gonna we're gonna confirm Republican judges and justices in the Senate. And we're going to cut taxes, right? Uh, but he couldn't get he couldn't get Obamacare repealed. He hasn't gotten legislation on immigration issues that would tie in his view of immigration, uh, and so he's acted, you know, almost completely by executive order and by some questionable uh, 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 executive actions, like you know, moving money around to build the wall. Uh, and I wonder if it's just a different understanding of the job of the president, because Lord knows FDR and, and, and LBJ got enormous amounts of legislation through Congress. Uh, and, and George W. Bush tried to, uh, and he certainly got, uh, he got, he got the, the war in 2003 through Congress with, with large majorities, much larger than his father had yeah. to, fight the, to fight the war uh, in 1991. Uh, and so I, maybe it's just a, a, the, the first three had a different conception of the job, that the job was to move public opinion in order to get legislative victories. Yeah, I, I, so like the, the first assumption I lay out in my book is that presidents want to, or leaders in democracies want to maximize domestic support for something like war. If yeah. there's no desire to do that, the argument's not going to travel very well. Um, I mean, Greg, your comments bring to mind to me a, a smart critique that you tend to find on the right of all of those on the left who are constantly emoting about Trump's nefariousness, which is you have to understand this guy is a world-class bumbler. Um, you know, he, he didn't expect to win. He was shocked when he did. He really didn't and does not have a real agenda. He spends most of his time stirring up drama via social media. He's more or less sidelined legislatively. And as we see now, he can't execute any real strategy to retain power or to deal with the substantive problems that the country really needs dealing with so he's he sometimes seems like he's an observer of his own administration yeah he talks you know, about his own administration i mean this is where maybe when he says the deep state we see a, a conspiracy but he might actually think that way yeah. that these are not my people you know um i don't really have any control over them. yeah so 
this leads me to a point that I want to talk a little bit about with you guys um, because it touches on some of my research interests and some of the things we've been we've been talking about, which is, <clears throat> as John's highlighted, this is a different type of strategy than even was common under uh, uh, George W. Bush, which is going on 20 years ago now. Um, how many? Yeah, almost. Okay. Yeah. So one thing that I, I wonder what the two of you think about is my sense is that from 2000 uh, to now, our information ecosystem, so the way that we all gather information, the way we gather our political information, the way we engage politically as a country is now uh, moderated almost um, exclusively, although it's not exclusive, but moderated by this big giant in the room, which John uh, alluded to, which is social media. And social media has kind of given us an ecosystem, going back to the post-truth stuff, where what we optimize on in this area of public debate isn't truth, it's clicks and likes and revenue, right? And so where we're our new public forum, our new public space, for lots of people is Facebook and Twitter. This is where people, this is where I used to go to have debates about politics. It's where lots of our colleagues go to Twitter to, to have these debates. It's where globally 4 billion people go to have these conversations in some way or another. And part of what this ecosystem does is creates um, echo chambers where instead of us all watching the main sources of, uh, the main kind of agreed upon sources of information, we have these recommender algorithms that just recommend confirmation bias. There's these confirmation bias generating machines um, where we don't have an incentive or a clear place that's necessarily easy in our, in our information ecosystems to go for some sense of, of shared reality. So I wonder, you know, in thinking about what enabled Trump's rise, I wonder what the two of you think about the fact that we're not really, if we ever were, I'm not sure we were ever optimizing on truth in these debates, so we should keep that in mind. But how much is how much of this is perverted to what's an effective strategy for a political leader to re retain power is division, echo chamber, illiberal behaviors of, you know, of kind of... Um, trying to gather their political power through Twitter. Um, so how much of this is, is not about Trump, although he exemplifies it, I think, in some, some, some interesting ways, but is this just the world we're living in now? I mean, is this, this approach of reaching for unity and common facts and some common ground, is that just a, a, you know, a lost dream at this point? What, what do you guys think about this? <laughs> Good. I stunned you both into silence. <laughs> well, the problem is I just watched The Social Dilemma like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally primed to fear and loathe uh, social media. But um, I guess one comment I'd like to make, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, both of you, um, is kind of liberalism as an ideology. I know it sounds like a departure, but it's not. And kind of whether it has the right take on how we tick as human beings. So one thing I think we're learning is that even in mature Western liberal democracies, we're hardwired to be kind of tribal in our politics. 
So we don't think of ourselves as individuals uh, pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most of us think of ourselves as parts of groups. And this is what I think social media reinforces and it what it's what I think President Trump excels at is identifying who are the groups and how do you pick a side? So, um, you know, there's no avoiding the fact that um, white identity politics is probably the central most important force in the last few elections culminating in President Trump's victory. And I think that's because there were already forces pushing in this direction, but Trump rode the wave into office, recognizing that Americans don't think of themselves as one people. We think of ourselves as groups of people, some of which are on the up and others of which are going down. And um, you can emphasize that. Um, and I don't think it's all cynical. Like, what would parties do other than represent different groups and their interests? It's hard to say what would be the point of them if there weren't differences between groups. But it's very touchy when the groups are um, uh, polarized along racial lines and religious lines, um, because we can sense that when, ident when identity conflict gets framed in those terms, it becomes very hard to compromise. I don't know, maybe social media makes that problem worse, but to me, that's the taproot, that politics is tribal and liberalism can only paper over this so much. Uh, I'm not, I'm not in my gut a liberal. I mean, I, Although I'm an American, and so I kind of Catholic speak again, Greg. Are you talking huh? Catholic? Are you abandoning liberalism for Catholicism? Is that's what's happening live? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I have a high degree of cognitive dissonance, so I, I can be both uh, quasi liberal and Catholic. I think I think it's called cafeteria Catholicism. <laughs> you, you, you pick you pick the bits that you like. Uh, no, I. I I'm not a liberal in that in the sense that I, I, I like John. I think I, I don't think that everybody's out for the good. I don't I don't think that people are basically good. I think they're basically bad. I I, I think that that we're we're uh, we're attracted to the darker sides of our nature. You know, the opposite of what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. If if Lincoln referred to the better angels of our nature, it means that there are worse angels of our nature, and he knew about them, right? Uh, but I'm enough of an American that I've kind of imbued the, the American liberal creed, right? Which is freedom, freedom of speech, uh, worry about too much government power, but also uh, modern America, reliance on the government to do certain things for us, like take care of us in retirement. And I'm getting close to that. So, you know, I've got an interest in this. Um, so I'm sympathetic to John's notion that that liberalism might give us a false sense of of what's possible in politics. Uh, you know, the, the 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 losers the losers accept and the winners don't gloat, and we all go out for a beer afterwards. Uh, it's nice, but I, I've got a couple of other things that I think have changed in America that have set the stage for what we're facing now, and one of them is our party system. <laughs> 
you know, John said, of course, parties are going to conflict with each other. That's what parties are for, right? But the American party system has become much more polarized. Uh, you guys are too young to remember when there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, right? I mean, the FDR coalition was liberal Northerners, populist Westerners, and, and, and segregationist white supremacist Southerners, right? And, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't seen as incompatible to be uh, uh, economically populist and a raving racist, right? Uh, as, as recently as, as 1960, right? You, you had a Democratic ticket that was a, a, a Northeastern liberal senator and what was at the time seen as a, a, a relatively conservative Southern senator when the Kennedy-Johnson ticket. Now, Johnson turned out to be more liberal than Kennedy, but that's not what people thought at the time. And you had plenty of liberal Republicans. I mean, Nelson Rockefeller was a lot more liberal than most Democrats. And, and you had a, a list of Republican senators who voted who, who separated themselves from Nixon early when he got in trouble, right? Who, who, uh, who were more liberal than a lot of the Democrats, a lot of the Southern Democrats. What we've seen is a, an ideological sorting of our politics. And whereas before, if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, that might not actually define where you come down on an issue, right? Because a New York Republican would be a lot different than a Texas Republican or a California Republican. And certainly a Massachusetts Democrat would be a lot different than an Alabama Democrat. Although maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into Massachusetts Democrats. We know a lot of them opposed racial segregation like busing in Massachusetts in the seventies, but opposed racial integration, I should say. But so our party systems, our party system has changed and it exacerbates the polarization it seems to me. and and. To some extent, we should blame ourselves as political scientists because political scientists always said, the American political system's a mush, right? What we really need is to give voters a clear choice. Well, we've given voters a clear choice. And surprise, surprise, they've taken it, right? Uh, go ahead, go ahead, John. I, I agree with everything you said, Greg. I guess the only thing I would add is, I'm not sure that the polarization is even always or primarily ideological. That's what scares me a bit. If it were kind of the traditional, how big should the state be? I don't think it would be as intense. Now it's, um, are you the party of uh, the young and minorities or are you the party of the last readout for the white middle class? Uh, so it's, it's, the, it's the perceived groupness of the polarization where, you know, um, this is kind of a, a, a fight for the control of which groups control the hot, you know, the commanding heights of American politics. Yeah, and I mean, you can split the, element. yeah, you can split the difference on the size of the state. Uh, yeah, exactly. But who's in control? And, and it, it is interesting. Uh, Justin, if you want me to shut up, just tell me, get in here, but. Uh, Many of the, of the people who make the intellectual case for President Trump argue that they represent a group that has no access to social and cultural power in America, right? That, that uh, 
you know, highfalutin professors like us control the commanding heights of our intellectual life, which we know is a complete joke. But uh, as but, Andrew but, Lefkowitz would say, have you seen the, have you seen how many listens we have? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, but there is this strong, this very strong belief among among people who support and and, and who justify and, and encourage others to support President Trump and try to explain this to benighted characters like us that that what we don't get is President Trump represents people who have no access to social, economic, intellectual, cultural power in the United States. Uh, and I. You know, my response to that is, then why is he president? <laughs> but, but you understand, you know, I mean, you, you, this is John's point about the, the, the nature of our polarization, right? It's not about, you know, how much should the budget deficit be? It's who gets to call the shots. Yeah, exactly. Power. Yeah. yeah. The other piece of this that I've seen um, uh, looks at the polarization piece through two more lenses. One is that as we've developed just uh, generally more affluence, it's easier for people to self-select into communities of people like them. And it doesn't require much of a change to shift the need to have, um, to be engaging in a marketplace of ideas. So you don't have to shift the neighborhood that much before you don't compete on the ideas anymore. Um, so, so that's one. The other, the, uh, the other evidence of this that is really troubling that I've seen is that when you look at survey results that, and you look at in-group and out-group, and I've shared this on the podcast before, when you look at in-group and out-group, the one group that people are most concerned about their, their, their children um, being married to is someone of the opposite political party. That's the thing people want the least, that they're most afraid of. I forget the exact phrasing. And, and, one of the mechanisms that, that's been uh, teased out from the psychology research is it's this idea of disgust, that we actually have disgust for people in the other political party. And that as, as disgust rises, that you have another problem there because you don't see the other people as human in the same way that we dehumanize other groups of people as well. And so I saw this as, as sort of evidence for not only just disagreements about you know size of government and other things, but it's not really it's, it's kind of, it's past that in the sense that we actually have um, kind of, yeah, like disgust for people in the other party and that we really don't want our children associated with them. And this is a real danger for a kind of a stable two-party system. Yeah, I, I told my kids that the thing that would bother me the most is if they married an academic. <laughs> but, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think where I we have a little bit more time. So we're moving forward. We have an election in 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 two weeks, and hold it. We have an election in two weeks. Greg, must you remind me? I know it's going to be a long two weeks. The last two weeks have felt like six election cycles. <laughs> I need to turn all of my uh, electronic media off. Um. So. There's an election, and I think there's um, 
there will be a lot going on in the interim between an election and actual assuming power. But I guess instead of talking on that, what do you guys see as we move forward? Is this something that we're stuck with? Do you expect future presidents to try the same same strategy? Is this a, is a moment in time? Do we have any optimism? I mean, as we look at the polls, one could argue that this has not been an effective strategy, that President Trump never got the majority of the population, barely got enough in electoral votes in the 2016 election. We're looking at the polling now. There's a 10 to 12 point national spread. Um, when you look at uh, uh, different ways of calculating the electoral uh, math, there are very few paths that seem likely to the, pres uh, to the presidency for uh, Donald Trump winning reelection. You know, some of this I get a little hesitant talking about because these are the same things that people were told leading up to 2016, of course, but it does seem to be a little bit different picture this time. So maybe the strategy of division, division, lies, lies, tearing people down, saying that your opponent should be going to prison and your attorney general should be prosecuting your your uh, your opponent right up to the election. And maybe the American people have some... <laughs> some kind of bottom line that they're they're willing to take from this. I mean, what do you what do you guys think? I mean, I do think that uh, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you actually want to get something done as president that endures, this is not a good strategy because it minimizes the amount of support you can generate. Um, you know, every president that that sweeps into office with some momentum has a moment where they can get a few big things done, um, usually. And, and that's not going to be possible with this strategy. Um, that said, um, if I were a, you know, there are several talented Republicans waiting in the wings to replace Trump down the line, and we'll see what they've learned. There are, there are more sophisticated ways to do what Trump tried to do. Uh, I do not want to see Tom Cotton <laughs> elected president of the United States in 2000, because he, he's much more disciplined, but he's learned, and I think his political identity is built around this notion of the real America. Um, and so I think as long as there's a bottom-up demand for some of this culture war way of framing our politics, you'll see this some elements of this strategy endure. And we just hope that, um, I don't think we can count on the next incarnation of this being as incompetent as the current president. So yeah. yeah. You know, I, we've had lots of presidents in our lifetimes who have campaigned as polarizers, but then pivoted to govern as unifiers. Even our own sainted namesake, George H.W. Bush, ran a somewhat polarizing uh, election campaign in 1988, uh, but immediately pivoted to, to try to govern as a, as a unifier. Uh, I think one could argue that, that uh, to some extent, recent Democratic presidents have come in on the on the back of Republican failures, whether it be the Iraq War and the and the uh, uh, Great Recession that brought uh, Barack Obama to power, uh, COVID nineteen 
and all of its consequences, which might bring Joe Biden to power. Even if we go back to Bill Clinton, it wasn't, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush didn't, didn't have failures on that scale. But, you know, there was a recession, mild recession going on. But when Republicans win, it, it's, it's tended to be recently because they could polarize effectively. Uh, and in that sense, Trump isn't different. He ran a polarizing election campaign, a, a base mobilization strategy election campaign. But his difference is that he didn't pivot once he got into office. And I think John's absolutely right that other, other Republicans would, would play that pivot more skillfully uh, and, and have a better balance between base mobilization and, and uh, the more, if you will, traditional the president of all the country approach. Uh, we're going to have a big test of this, right? We, we started out with Justin's question about has AI and, 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 and social media made it impossible for us to have a common conversation. Uh, well, we're going to have a big test of this in a couple of weeks. Yeah. If, Joe, if Joe Biden beats Donald Trump by 10 percentage points. If it's a 55-45 election, these days that's a landslide, right? And, and if he brings in a Democratic Senate with him, you know, all of a sudden there's going to be all sorts of talk about, you know, mobilization uh, on the left and, 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 the law and the center moving to the, moving to the Democratic side. And, and we might have a very different conversation. Uh, there's also tests in other parts of the world, not, yes, there are some common features in developed democracies to a phenomenon that we're seeing in the US, but there are also real differences, right? Angela Merkel is an extremely popular chancellor in the Federal Republic of Germany, right? We don't see these kinds of populist upsurges in the politics of, of Taiwan or Japan uh, in New Zealand, right? The Labor Party won its its biggest victory, I think, in in New Zealand history, with nearly fifty percent of the vote just this past weekend. And, and so there are ways that one can play the game of politics that mitigates. The, the, the intense polarization and mitigates the mobilization around, uh, around themes of, of us, the real X versus them, the other, the not real members of our community. Uh, we, tend to, we tend to emphasize the things, the, the similar elements that we see to our populist politics our polarizing politics, be they, uh, you know, in, in, in Poland and Hungary or, or Brexit in Britain. But there are also plenty of examples of democracies that have not had the same kind of, of effects, or at least not to the same degree. So I, I, we'll, ha we'll have a much better picture in two weeks yeah. as to just, just what all this means for our country. Yeah, so it turns out, Greg, after after a long, lots of conversations, this is the last time people will hear from us before the election. We're actually yeah. going to, our next recording will be the day after. 
Greg and I decided not to bother you on election night. But we've got other things. We got other things to do on election night. But we will um, we will do a live hot takes on on YouTube and then post election uh, November fourth at uh, three p.m. Um, but Greg, paint me what you think we're going to see on election night. I got to I got to get your take before the election happens. You know, I I go up and down on this, Justin, but I'll go with the numbers. I'll assume that the pollsters have learned a lesson from 2016, that they've changed their algorithms in terms of turnout, in terms of of education as a driver of voting. Uh, And I'll I'll say that uh, Biden wins, maybe not a 10 point victory, but wins, you know, a six to eight point popular vote victory and a and that gives him an electoral college landslide, you know, maybe 370 electoral votes. 370? All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go around there. Got to get John on the record. Well, look, I won't, I'm not savvy enough to give an electoral vote number, but look for more um, Ben Sassy and John Cornyn moments over the next few weeks. That will be a leading indicator. Um, leaked conversations to supporters along the lines of I've always known this guy was trouble for the party and um, now I'm going to tell you about a week before election day so yeah. um, well when when Lindsey Graham does that then we'll know that yeah. the ship as, as, as Michael Ray Richardson famously said when he played for the Knicks the ship be sinking <laughs> <laughs> well um Anything, we have a few more minutes. Anything on Just, you guys? Justin, oh. come on, what's your take? Oh, me. Um, so I, um, I would have, to, I, would, I would take the numbers as well. I'm expecting a seven to eight point spread. Um, and I, 390s, uh, 370s a lot. I, I was thinking more like in the 320 or 330 range. So mm, that it's okay. like a, it's not close, but um, three three seventy would be a lot. Um, so, I'm I think the I think the election is going to play out where Joe Biden wins the popular vote and the electoral vote. I think what goes down between election night and um, inauguration day, um, I'm quite concerned about. As as I know a lot of a lot of people are, so I am concerned about the interim. Um, I think right. I, you know, I, I just got the Atlantic with the Barton Gelman article that spurned a lot of this. And I have to say, a lot of these tactics are not viable if, yeah. if it's a strong win by Biden. You, it, it would, mm-hmm. you know, these state Republican parties are not going to commit total suicide um, on behalf of a losing cause. So uh, I hope that's not, you know, um, I, I don't want to jinx anything, but I mean, you know, when this stuff was being written, the nightmare scenario is a very close election. Right. There's, you know, enough legitimate uncertainty that, you you know, people start going, well, are we sure the vote count is valid? So on and so forth. If it's, I, I think John's absolutely right. I mean, I, when I read the Barton Gelman piece, I, it kept me up at night. It was just nightmare inducing. But if, if, if we're right, that this is a six to eight point popular vote win. 
I think that that means it's not that close in a lot of places that it was close in 2016 or that it was close in 2000. And, and I don't see even William Barr falling on his sword for Donald Trump if Trump has lost, clearly lost Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and uh, Arizona and, and appears to have lost Florida by a relatively slim margin, maybe one percentage point, but seems to have lost. And even if you go through a big recount in Florida, doesn't make any difference because Biden's already well over 270. Uh, I, I mean, this is, this is maybe me just trying to convince myself that everything's gonna turn out all right, but. Well, I think my, my when I thought through this, I think there, if, if to you guys' point, if we're right um, and the, the polls are right, then the number of strategies uh, that even even if they're reckless, that can be employed to generate to generate um, problems, I think is is weak. But I'm I'm afraid it it won't play like that in real time. And in mm-hmm. real time, I think there are a lot of scenarios in between this clear clear win and a lot of suspicion thrown on it. I mean, I I imagine a world where he declares victory on election night and and says the whole thing's a scam, and not that he would. Not that, that he would get that he would convince the electoral college or be able to retain power, but that still creates a lot of American weakness, a lot of opportunity for exploitation by actors that want to press Americans' buttons. That for two months, <laughs> for two and a half months, we're going to be in this weird world where even if he's lost and even if it's clear, the man still has all the keys to power and can throw all kinds of doubt and leave a lot of. Uh, madness in his wake, and uh, I but, think. But who's going to follow him? I mean, in a really close election, in a really close election, maybe, maybe William Barr and Mitch McConnell, and a lot of other uh, people follow him. But in a, in the kind of scenario that we've been talking about here, who who falls on his sword for Donald Trump? Well, I think a lot of a lot of them do because a a lot of them have done things that upon reflection after they're not part of that administration <laughs> uh, might be in some in some trouble. I mean, Trump himself was joking at a rally that if he lost, he might have to leave the country. <laughs> so yeah, but, but, but all these people followed him when it looked like he was a winner. If he loses the way we're talking, he's a big loser. And, and, and if there's one thing that, that professional politicians know it's the stink of a loser and they run from that. Uh, I, we'll this, is, this, is, this is me at my most optimistic. <laughs> I, you know, Mitch McConnell has already um, uh, stopped engaging on the, uh, on the relief package. The president is calling for a bigger package than Nancy Pelosi wants and McConnell is not even remotely throwing him a life preserver. Um, so again, I, I, not that that foretells everything, but I, I just, I would not underestimate the self-preservation instincts, especially of the top Republicans in the Senate um, who, who have futures ahead of them, uh, or they'd like to. Or, uh, or, or we'll see after election day if they have futures ahead of them. <laughs> 
I mean, I do, there's a narrower question about some of the private discussions that will probably be had about uh, whether to grant the president and some of his family members immunity for in the future in exchange for not doing certain damaging things on the way. I don't know, but that that is another subject, I would say. Um, because well, you're I, right. Yeah. I'm glad you guys retain confidence in the Republican elite at this point in the process um, of not going down with Trump. I have to say there were lots of stops along the way that I would have thought people would have left him on and um, they have not. Um, so I'm hoping that you guys are right. <laughs> um, well, I, we're at our hour mark. Um, John, thanks for coming and tackling this topic with us. It's a pleasure always to get to chat with you. And um, Greg, it's good to see you as well. And uh, to the listeners, uh, hang tight and uh, take care of yourselves. It turns out that we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, despite uh, a number of the president's continued lies about COVID, we are in a pandemic still. So take care of yourselves um, and stay safe and vote. And um, we will see you all the day after the election. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye.